0: Yeah, my name is Scott, for anyone who does not know, and uh, yeah, I'm one of the leaders here at Elam Young Adults, and I feel very privileged tonight. We're starting a series on Daniel, as you can see, and uh, I I remember we were in like a meeting and Pastor Luke was saying like, yeah, I'd really like to do a series on Daniel, and I was like, okay, like, cool, that's, I mean, I don't, I'm not like immediately opposed, but, like, I think we know those stories, right? Like, I mean, I grew up in church, like, these are kind of the A-listers for Sunday school characters. Like, you have Daniel, he's thrown in lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, they were on the Veggie Tales videos. Um, I was like, we, like, we know these stories, but then I thought about it, and uh, Luke's a lot bigger than I am. Um, I'm just kidding. But as, as I began to study these, these stories and The the chapters in Daniel and kind of like started to think about how they actually might apply to us as young adults, not as six and seven year olds who are hearing these stories in Sunday school, I I began to just kind of be amazed at like how relevant I think that this book is to the moment that we're actually currently in. Um, If you spend any amount of time studying Christianity in Canadian culture today, you're gonna find that it's uh, we're, like, not doing amazing at the moment. There, there's actually, like, a, a pretty large move away from Christianity. Um, and not only Christianity, but actually religion as a whole. Uh, the, the quickest growing religious affiliation right now that's grained, gained the most ground in the last decade is actually not having a religious affiliation. This has been coined the rise of the nuns, because when you ask, what's your religious affiliation, they would say, none, I don't have any. And it's not, not even that they like, don't associate with a the religion, they just don't have any interest in religion. And today we're in a moment where one in three young adults who grew up attending church now no longer identify as Christians. One in three. So many young adults now are leaving the church. And it's not happening as this hard and fast decision, like, you know what, I thought about it. I really dug into Christian apologetics and uh, I really I did a lot of reading and I, I just can't stand for this anymore. That happens, for sure, but it's not the majority. A lot of the stories of people saying that they no longer believe in Christianity is stories more like, you know, you move to the city, you, maybe it's rural Saskatchewan, you come to Saskatoon to study at university or to get a job here and church just doesn't really fit in your life anymore. It's actually just a series of small yeses and a series of compromises that actually lead you into not attending church anymore. Maybe you have a a group project that needs to meet on a Sunday morning to get some work done. Um, You have a job where you work on the weekends and it just doesn't allow you to get to church. Or maybe it's... You're just real tired on Sunday morning and you, you just want to sleep in. Guilty on occasion. But for, particularly for young people who move away from home, it just becomes a pattern where you're busy on Sundays, you didn't have time to make it to small group, or you just struggle to find a church where you fit in. And as a young adult group, this is our friends, this is our peers, sometimes our family, and I would venture to guess that this has been the story of some people who are in this room here tonight. It can be really difficult to stand firm in your faith as a Christian today, And not only is it difficult to remain a Christian just as you enter the phase of adulthood and other things get in the way, but a lot of us are entering universities or workplaces where a belief in Jesus and a belief in Christian values just doesn't really fit in. And it's actually maybe even discouraged. We live in a postmodern society. And if I could just sum up postmodernism as quickly as I can, I would just say like, The truth is subjective now. What's true for me might not be true for you. And let's all just keep that to ourselves. We're not gonna try to push or convert people to what we believe. Just you own your truth, I'll own mine. And so rather than join a religion that already has this established set of truth and beliefs and, and rules, we just kind of have this melting pot of what we want to believe, and people don't really like Christian values, to be honest. And honestly, they don't really like Christians. Um, people throw around the word judgy or um, hypocritical or that, that it's a little old-fashioned, they're too conservative in their, some of their values. And we hear things like, stop telling me what to do. You don't get to decide what's right for me. Or maybe like, I'm supposed to wait until I'm married until I start having sex with other people. Like, it, like, it's physical activity, like, chill, bruh. Or, why would I listen to you? Christians don't actually have a great track record when it comes to issues of morality. And that's, like, a little bit true, but I would argue it's also not that true. Um, Christians, if you look at healthcare, education, or so many advances in civilizations, they've come from Christians, and they have done a lot of good in the world. But we still have some work to do because our public persona is not that great right now. And we're actually losing members across denominations, whether it's Mennonite churches or Alliance churches or like this is a Pentecostal church. A lot of our churches are losing men- members. That's kind of the pattern across, across the church in North America. They're either declining or they're plateaued, which really with... The growth of population, most of the churches that are plateauing aren't actually keeping up with population, so percentage-wise, they're still in a decline. So we have to shift our thinking. And we can't just assume that we are the dominant voice in culture. We are now a minority. If you are here tonight and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are living in culture as a minority. But this definitely isn't the first time this has happened, and it's not going to be the last. So we're going to spend the next few months looking at the book of Daniel. And Daniel was a young man who lived as a minority in his culture, which was a very, very anti-God culture. And not only did he live there, he was immersed in it. So let's look at the first chapter of Daniel. It's Daniel 1, starting at verse 1. If you have your Bibles, it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. It starts off, says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So what just happened is the Israelites, who Daniel was a part of, they they got beat in a war. They were sieged by the Babylonians, and they were taken out of their land. Their houses were destroyed, their temple was destroyed, their walls were destroyed, everything that they had was taken away, and this was not just like an unfortunate little incident. It was after centuries of failing to follow the laws that God had put in place, and centuries of God giving them second chances and saying, you can You can repent. You can do it. You can make it through this. It doesn't, like, I've made these promises for you, and there is hope for you if you just follow my rules, and they continually disobey, and finally God has enough, and he allows the Israelites to be defeated, and Babylon was everything that God warned the Israelites not to be. The Israelites were called to be holy and set apart and honoring God, and the Babylonians were pagan, and they were trying to do it on their own, and they worshiped idols. They were prosperous. They were wealthy. They had influence on the rest of the world's culture, and they were totally convinced that they could do it without God, that they could be successful without leaning on God. Which sounds kind of like us. Do we not live in this Western world looking remarkably similar to Babylon. We, we are the leaders of culture. We're influencing what the rest of the world looks like and wants to be like. We're offering the best education. We're offering the most advanced technology. And I know it would really be the USA that would probably like most accurately resemble this, but culturally Canada is not far behind. There are a ton of similarities. And so then we meet Daniel and his three friends who are right in the middle of this situation. And it says, The king then ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from his table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So Daniel and his three friends are really the best that Israel has to offer. They're tall. They're dark. They're handsome. They are smart. They're quick learners. And they're gonna serve the king of Babylon. They're taken aside, taken out of their homes, and they're put in this new education system so that one day they can be servants directly to the king. And the first thing that Babylon does is they change their name. And this was in a culture where your name was highly important to who you were and what your identity was. And we can actually see that all through scripture. Um, Starting in Genesis, like we have Jacob, whose name was Heel Grabber, because he came out holding his twin brother's heel. And then later his name is changed to Israel, as he's like redeemed by God. Or Jesus, um, Emmanuel, God with us. Their names are very important to them. There was a high value, and the Babylonians changed their names from names that honored God into names that would have been associated with the idols that Babylon worshipped. Yet, you could argue that they were actually treating Daniel and his friends pretty well. Um, They were getting a great education. They were safe. They were getting great food. So Daniel's next move is a little weird. It says, but Daniel resolved Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please, test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. Now, personally, I always like to imagine Daniel's friends in this situation, like... They're studying or something, hanging out, and Daniel walks in. He's like, hey, guys, I um, just feel like the Lord's really putting on my heart. Like, um, I, don't, I don't think we can eat the food that, uh, that the king's offering us. You know that feast that we were at earlier? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's for us. Um, I think we should just have vegetables and water instead. And I was like to imagine, like, a bednego. I don't know why, but he was just like, hey, hey Daniel, uh, real quick. Um... Tried a pork rib yesterday for the first time. <laughs> um <laughs> and, and now you want us to be like raw vegans. Cool. Um why? <laughs> but Daniel actually, we know why. He had pretty good reason to. Uh not only was the food not kosher, which is very important for the Jewish people, it uh it was probably involved in idol worship. Because the food, it wasn't kosher, it would have been cooked wrong, and, and there would have been banned food on the table. But we also know that there was wine and they abstained from that, but like wine was not banned as part of the Mosaic law. So we can assume that Daniel was abstaining from this food because. It was involved in idol worship because what they would do is before it made it to the king's table they would take all the food and they would present it to their idols as a sacrifice and then whatever was taken was taken and then whatever was left they would bring back to the king's table and then they would have a feast. So then it says at the end of the ten days of eating just vegetables and water they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, they were to drink, and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So much like us, Daniel is in this culture that is very closed off to what he believes, and they are actively moving away from the values that he holds dear. And yet he heads right into the thick of it. He doesn't shy away from people who believe differently than him, he goes right into the middle of their culture and he learns everything that he can about them. But in doing so, where he doesn't compromise is when it comes to his own holiness, his own standing before God. Daniel refused to compromise, and he not only remains faithful to God and what he believes in, but he ends up exercising significant influence on the culture around him, as we're going to continue to discover throughout these weeks. And I believe that this holds true today. You do not need to compromise what you believe in, in order to have influence on the culture around you. And a lot of Christians are pretty convinced that we've lost our influence, and that's like not wrong, honestly. We already established we've become the minority, and we now hold on to these morals that seem outdated, that aren't relevant, and that aren't rooted in reality. But, We go full steam ahead entering into debate circles and we pick it and we repost articles on Facebook and we lament that whatever happened to Canada We built this nation on Christian principles and they're throwing those away This is a Christian nation and we're just leaving that behind And I would say that's absolutely not right We're not a Christian nation America is not a Christian nation, neither is England or South Korea or Nepal or Australia or any other country, because there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Israel was led into exile because they were a country that was chosen and governed by God. They purified their country because they were a Jewish nation, and they were taken into exile because they failed to live up to the standards that God had set for them, and they had been chosen by God to follow and serve him and to live as an example to the rest of the world. God has not chosen Canada to live as an example to the rest of the world. Yes, there was Christians at the time that our country was founded, and in some of our original documents, you can find Christian values and verses throughout them. But God did not choose Canada. God chose the church. He chose us to live as an example to the rest of the world. So we immerse ourselves into the culture. We learn about it, we participate in it, but we refuse to compromise our personal holiness and our standing before God as we do so. And so all of these issues that are in the gray area, we work with them through scripture, we work with, through them with community, and we do the difficult work to form our Christian worldview, and it's not an easy task, it's difficult work, but it is important. Because a lot of people, especially those who have maybe grown up in Christianity, have taken issue with some of the issues that Christians maybe stumble around, whether it be like dress code or tattoos or our stances on politics or our music. And these are a tension point for young Christians as they, as they go and discover what it is they really believe. But we also have bigger issues like sexuality, abortion, the role of women in leadership, and all of these other things that cause the world to look down on us. And we have to figure out how to navigate it. So I want to leave you with two things. The first is to choose your battles wisely. When Daniel was alive, his country had lost everything. They were dragged out of their cities, their place of worship was destroyed, they were exiled to another land, they lost their home, their walls were torn down, and on top of that, Daniel had his name changed. He was forced into schooling for a culture and for gods that he did not believe in, and some scholars speculate he may have lost even his gender identity as he underwent the process to become a eunuch in order to serve in the king's palace. In Canada, on the other hand, I read this article the other day titled, Christian Values Are Indeed Under Attack in Canada, which is about a couple who was denied adoption rights by the Alberta courts because of their views on same-sex marriage, and I absolutely agree that is wrong. That is not a reason to refuse somebody the right to adopt in our country. And this article rightly stated how horrific this was, but then mentioned that just a few months later they had appealed and the court had actually reversed their decision. The attack on our beliefs that we are experiencing today is very different from what the Israelites experienced. Yet our culture of outrage has tricked many of us into believing that it is basically the same thing that we are experiencing. I want to point out that Daniel only took issue when it was his personal standing before God that was being compromised. He wasn't mad about the rejection of his values or about the secular schooling or about the stripping of his identity. He got upset when they asked him to to defile himself before God. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus calls to be sheep living among the wolves and he sends us out. He sends us out, and he demands courage from his sheep to take the risk to live among the wolves. And Daniel was living among the wolves. And not only did he live, he thrived. And we need Christians who are thriving amongst the rest of our our culture. I believe that we are far more threatened by irrelevance than we are by persecution. The irrelevance of Christianity seems to be growing every day. So when issues come up, rather than conforming to the culture of outrage, think carefully. What are you actually willing to stand up for? And most importantly, when you stand up, how are you doing it? How can you respond in such a way that reflects Christ who lives in you? So how do we live like Daniel? How do we live among the wolves? Which leads me to my second point. Don't condemn demonstrate instead. Sometimes Christians get caught up in this game of telling their non-Christian friends and neighbors how to live. We like to point out their sin and just plead them, please behave better, do better. We ask the government to enforce our rules, to uphold our values, and we expect everybody to follow our rules because we know best. And that's true, we do know best. We have the Bible, which I believe is our guideline and our way To truth. We have the answers that the world is looking for, but what doesn't work is asking for obedience before we ask for belief. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, this prominent Welsh pastor from the 19th century, wrote on this subject, to expect Christian conduct from a person who is not born again is rank heresy. To expect Christian conduct from a person who's not born again is rank heresy. First off, love that. Rank heresy. Get him, Martin. That's, yeah. That's great. What a great phrase. But he believed that to ask a non-Christian to look like a Christian was wildly unbiblical. It makes no sense. We believe that we can live the way that we are only by the Spirit living inside of us and through us. So to ask people to uphold our values makes no sense. Don't get caught up in this. Instead of condemning the actions of others, do what Daniel did and demonstrate to them that there's a better way. We have no better model of this than Jesus himself, who, who walked among people and who interacted with people and had sinners who were literally thrown at his feet. And time and time again in the Gospels, we see that when that happened, that he had nothing but grace for these people. The people that he condemns are those who are religious, who are trying to enforce the rules that they actually made up on the culture around them. And he's angry at those people. He does not have time for them. His default is always grace. And he says to those who are following him, refuse to compromise. In Matthew 5, he says that it is better to pluck your eye out than it is to let it lead you into sin. And I, like, I don't... I'm not saying that we should probably do that literally, but like what Jesus is saying is cut everything out of your life that's going to lead you into sin. Do everything you can to avoid it because I don't think that we're going to get to the end of our lives and get into heaven and stand before the Father and say like, yeah, I mean like I I just enjoyed Game of Thrones, okay? Like it was it was really good. Um, You get it, right? Actually, I've never seen Game of Thrones. I don't know anything about it, but I hear other people talk about it, and it seems bad, so <laughs> that's the example I went with. <laughs> but what Jesus is saying is that when we get to the end of our lives, the most important thing is going, to, is going to be that we can say to God, I did everything I could not to compromise what I believed in, and I did everything... I could so that when I stood here that you would look at me and say well done good and faithful servant because I was faithful to the values that you laid out for me and if you look throughout the history of the church most often the times that Christianity was most vibrant and most exciting was when they were a minority in culture or when they were being persecuted and I mean like really persecuted when Christianity began they They found them, and they threw them into the Colosseum to fight the lions. Throughout history, we have stories of Christians being burned at the stake, of being driven out of their homes, and even today we have this underground church that, that is being persecuted all over the world. And these are the times that Christians begin to get most creative. To go into the most undesirable areas, to help the least of the least, Saving unwanted children, working with people who are diseased, and going to the furthest corners of the world to share the gospel. It is through these actions that the gospel spreads. When we are acting so counterculturally, when we're standing up and letting our modern Babylon know that we refuse to compromise to what they want us to look like, and that we're going to stand up for what's right, not by pushing for political action or asking for government handouts, by simply by going out and demonstrating what it looks like to be the hands and feet of Jesus here on earth. I hope that excites somebody here because it gets me fired up. But if you aren't a follower of Jesus and you're wondering like, what are we talking about? Um, We would love to talk to you, Pastor Luke or myself, or if you came with a friend and we would love to just be able to tell you about what God has done in our lives and what we believe that he can do in your lives and and why following the Bible is a better way to live but if you're here and you already are a follower of Jesus I just want to ask what is your next move where are you going to take a stand and when you stand up how are you going to do it where in your life are you going to refuse to compromise and what what's already in your life that maybe needs to go And what do you see coming that might be a potential challenge in the future that you just need to to put some walls up around and to protect yourself from? Because I believe that our best witness to the world is through a righteous and holy life that is doing everything it can to honor God, just like Daniel did in this story. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for each and every person in this room who is represented and uh, I thank you for the example that we have through scripture of people living out their faith in in hostile times And in times where they were totally unwelcome and Lord I pray That we would learn from these stories that we would learn from these examples and that we would put these principles into place And that the young people who are in this room would go out from this room feeling empowered by your spirit to go and demonstrate what it is to live radically for Jesus. And that we would see communities and cities, countries and the world changed through that, Lord. Through a generation who is not willing to compromise. In your name we pray. Amen.